you know, by the time I took over that summer, the store was in total shambles. Hey, should we bake more? Should we bake less? What are we expecting? I'm like, I'm gonna go in, we're gonna do everything by the book, we're gonna change it all. I'm Andy Jones and welcome to the Hospitality Leadership Podcast, where it is my mission to help simplify leadership in hospitality. Join me as I explore insights and concepts to help you excel in the fast-paced world of hospitality leadership, from the latest industry trends to the best practices for managing teams, driving growth, and making life much easier for you. We break things down into simple, step-by-step strategies that are actionable and help you lead your people and business with purpose. We help hospitality leaders like you balance the demands of their guests, their staff, and their bottom line. So welcome to the Hospitality Leadership Podcast. And before we get going, I have a really big favor to ask of you. And that is, if you've got the time, if you have chance, and if you've ever benefited from any of the conversations we have had on this podcast, I would love if you could go and leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcast, because it allows us to reach a wider audience, allows us to bring better guests on as well. So I would really appreciate if you could help me out and to do that. So today we're talking to Matt Wampler. So he is the co-founder, CEO of ClearCogs, which is an AI-powered software solution for your business, which allows you to really dig into your cost of goods. It allows you to prep the right amount. It it does so much for your business that, you know, it's something that you as a leader may not have the time to do effectively. So today we're going to be talking about Matt's background, where he came from through hospitality or through restaurants, franchised restaurants. We're also going to touch on the power of AI and how that is impacting the business of hospitality and how AI in particular is the biggest trend at the minute for changing the future of the hospitality industry, whether that's a hotel, restaurant, coffee shop, there's potential for it to change your business. So we're going to get straight into this episode after we get back from thanking our sponsors. So it's just me again, and I wanted to quickly talk to you about support for your people. Right now, we have launched our leadership support program. So for less than the cost of one full-time UK minimum wage employee, we can support four of your key leaders on their journey, on their challenges, and give them the developmental needs that they need to raise your business to the next level. So that's four people weekly coaching sessions, weekly development sessions, group sessions, and we also work with senior leadership to make sure that all that is aligned with the overall aims and organizational values. Head over to thecafehustle.com forward slash leadership support right now to get the most up-to-date details about what's included and the benefits to your business and more importantly how you can get involved we've only got limited slots for this program alone and if you've got more than four leaders and we can absolutely accommodate that as well that's the cafehustle.com forward slash leadership support so matt thank you so much for joining me on the hospitality leadership podcast how are you andy i'm doing great thanks for having me yeah we were, we were just talking about how long it's taken us to get around to making this conversation happen. I think it's been on for nine months since we first spoke about the idea of coming on the podcast and with one thing and another, you know, we, we've forgotten about it almost, but glad that we could get it and eventually make it happen. Although tech issues aside that we've been having in the setup, fingers crossed we get this done. So, but yeah, so First and foremost, you, you've got a background in operating restaurants. So as, as you are now the, the CEO of ClearCogs, which we'll get on to a little bit later on, your background is in operating restaurants. So first and foremost, just give us a little bit of an overview of your career and your background and where you've come from through the hospitality industry. Yeah, so I was in those uh, fake restaurants, the franchised ones, uh, not – not building something up for myself, but um, I started out as a uh, Jimmy John's franchisee right out of college. Some guy had run his uh, uh, location into the ground and needed a patsy to get out of the lease. And I was the 
idiot 21 year old that said, Hey, how hard can it be? Yeah. You know, sell me your thing for pennies on the dollar. I'd love to love to give it a try. So how did that come about? And what was the, what was your journey into, to get into that point where you're almost looking like a, a bargain in terms of, of a business proposition, but I know from looking at your bio, it's, it wasn't quite as easy as that. How did you get to that situation? What were you, were you operating the restaurant? Were you, were you working there? What was the, what was the situation? Well, it, running a restaurant's never as easy as you, you think it's going to be. Uh, but no, I, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois, which is where Jimmy John's headquarters was based. Um, you know, Jimmy John himself, it was like three blocks away from me. I actually washed his cars as a kid. And so that was just part of the, the ethos of my hometown. And, you know, I was a dyslexic ADHD kid and, you know, had the option to go out and do, you know, a, a corporate job. And, you know, along the way realized, you know, I don't really want to work in a cubicle and, you know, do a lot of reading and number crunching, right? Like I would much rather go operate something. And so it kind of got stuck in my head. And, you know, I, I looked around to um, maybe go open one, find some financial partners to back me. And the long and short of it was I just found this opportunity. It had all the right problems. It was in the right location. It just seemed to have, you know, bad management. And so I thought I'd uh, roll the dice and, you know, was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to. What were some of the biggest changes then that you made? When you first went in there, was it something that you'd seen even before you took it over that you wanted to change or was it things that you had to take a little bit of time to do? Yeah. So somebody gave me this advice right before I took over. It was, you know, the night before and they said, you know, Matt, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to go in. We're going to do everything by the book. We're going to change it all. And they said, you know, that is a recipe for disaster. So go in quiet, right? Don't, don't say you're going to change everything. And just change one thing at a time, just slowly moving in the right direction and always execute. And people will see the progress you're making and they will join on that train. And, and that is really what we did um, with one slight exception. You know, uh, we closed the deal a couple months before I actually took over. So, you know, by the time I took over that summer, the store was in total shambles. I mean, if the air conditioner's out, it's 95 degrees outside. The grease traps overflowing. We had ice buckets on top of the compressors to keep them from overheating. He turned over all the staff. So there's only like three employees. Oh, and by the way, you know, college semester starts in like six weeks. So it, it was uh, it was a lot at once. But, uh, uh, you know, I still tried to keep to that principle of, you know, not trying to change everything at once, you know, not try to create waves, just going quietly and do the work and, and get people to follow. It's one of the biggest things that we train our young, you know, younger leaders on in particular when they're first coming into leadership positions or if they're aspiring to be leaders. A lot of them have this idea, this this want to make a mark or want to make an impact early on. And we've learned, and certainly you've learned from an invaluable mentor there, that it's actually better to take it slow, get in there, understand how things operate, why they operate that way, and then, as you say, make those changes slowly and build that momentum with people. It's a massive, massive bit of um, a really rewarding piece of work when you get it to happen like that. And people start jumping on the bandwagon and working towards what you're working towards. Now, in terms of leadership in particular, I know that was one big lesson. Have you got any other lessons in terms of people leadership that you learned from operating? How many... I don't know how you had multiple, multiple locations you were, were managing at one point. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Five of them. But, you know, before we move on to that, you know, I'll say I give all the credit to, to Jimmy John's corporate for, for being able to give me the playbook to success. And I think it actually goes along with what you're saying. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's not trying to do everything, you know, we were able to take that unit and take it from doing 400,000 to 1.2 million over the next 18 months. And I wasn't the sharpest operator. I, I didn't know what to do. I had no experience in this. They provided me a playbook and my job was to just, you know, take the punch list and check off the items and, you know, give fast flawless service every time. And 
that's why we were able to triple sales. And, you know, it, it wasn't this, you know, come up with this amazing plan. It was just execution. Which is usually, you know, the, that's the thing that makes a difference, isn't it? Execution. You mentioned there they gave you the playbook. What did that look like? What was in there? What did you, what could other people learn from, you know, these big corporate operators, certainly franchisees? What can we, what can we learn from the materials that they gave you? You know, I, I think one of the things that they did was with great specificity, say these are everything you need to do. You need to measure your cucumbers every day, right? You need to wash the mop guards, right? You need to go do an audit every morning of all of the corners and this and that, right? And they trained you to always be looking at the small stuff. And when you're hyper-focused on the small stuff down to the granular detail, it sets a culture that, you know, these things matter and that you need to sweat the small stuff. And when you sweat the small stuff, when you count, you know, when you're counting the pennies, you know, the dollars take care of themselves. And the same thing goes true. You know, if, if you're watching how clean the mop guards are in the back of the house, right? You know, it, the tables out in the lobby tend to stay cleaner. It, it's a weird thing. Is it's... It's all about mindset, isn't it? We need to, as leaders, make that transition, that mindset transition into the detail element of it. Because I think we get pulled into, you know, how the space looks from a macro point of view, never ever looking at those micro details that add up to create a great experience. And if you can, as an operator, can get your people thinking in the same way, you're going to be on the route to success. I know there's a lot more that goes into it than other than that, but it feeds into every part of the business. Like you're talking there, portion control, it's massive. Yeah. Now, turning to turn it back to that question around people leadership, what did you learn in your time running those five locations about people leadership in particular? What is there anything that you can share from your experience that was really important in terms of traction for you or managing multiple locations? What did you do? So this is a subject I thought a lot about, especially in my early years. You know, I, I had never managed anything before. I'd never led a team before. I'm very young, you know, younger than a lot of my employees at the time. And so I went out and tried to read every leadership book there was and tried to emulate all of the the different teachings they had. And, you know, I was always struck that there was this, um, there was this disconnect between what people would say you should do and what I'd seen other leaders do in the past that made them successful. And a lot of the things that they, you know, the people that I saw that built great companies would do, you know, was the opposite of what you were taught. And yet, they had been disproportionately, you know, successful. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, I've, I've kind of come to terms with is everyone has a different leadership style. But of all of the people that I've seen that have been incredibly successful in leadership, they've all been authentic. They've been themselves. And, you know, I learned early on that some things just didn't work for me. Like, I love being the cheerleader. I love doing the servant leadership, go in and clean the toilet and show them how to like, I thrive on that. But I remember having an employee once that uh, he was one of my general managers and he did everything wrong by the book, right? He was kind of a gruff blue collar guy that, you know, go clean the toilet because I told you to, you know, if you want to keep your job. And I'm like, I always kept in his ear like, you know, this is not how you lead people. This isn't going to be successful for you. But I gave him enough, you know, rope to, you know, go off and, and try these things. And, you know, it was really interesting watching what happened. He ended up self-selecting a group around him that responded to that. And, you know, everything's relative. So I'm always praising people and, you know, cheerleading them. You know, the value of my praise goes down because it happens so often. Whereas he would just give a smile or a nod to somebody. And that meant the world. And sure enough, I mean, he took that unit from losing $50,000 in one year to making $60,000 the next year. It was run as one of the best units. And it was like, okay, you know, the only reason that these two things can be true is that that is his leadership style, authentic to him. And like, 
you know, employees smell that out, right? Your team knows when you're faking it and when you're being real. And it's important, as you say there, is you, he built the team around him that responded to his leadership style. And I think we have this issue where, you know, sometimes bad managers, and I say that in, you know, quote marks, are actually just people or managers that don't fit a person's own values or the culture and what their expectations are of a, of a location. When, like you're saying there, it's all about building the people around you that resonate with how you lead your people. And as much as, you know, I know my leadership style is very different to that, I am very much, you know, a servant leader. But you're right, you've got to find the right people for the business, the right person for that culture. And by doing that, that's how you build a high-performing team rather than just, you know, having... Uh, a really nice environment for people. It's got to be something that people are expecting and are happy to work in. That's what makes it a great environment. Yeah, and restaurants are unique in the sense that, you know, it's got such a naturally high turnover rate that you end up turning your team over so you are able to self-select better than if you're, you know, a manager at some large corporation. Like, that's your team, and you need to learn how to get along with them. Um, Yeah, it's different. I mean, I, I'm actually interested in your thoughts on this. You know, uh, that's my takeaway that, you know, mo- not all of these leadership styles are um, work for everyone, right? You know, what's your experience there? For us, certainly working with, with clients, it's not so much about defining them as leadership styles. It's more about preferences. And I think we have to find, like you say, the people that respond to particular preferences. I would always like to see people going down the servant leadership route only because you are able then to empower people so much easier that way. And you'll, you you grow the resilience in the business. But again, it, it all has to serve a purpose. And if, if, a, if a particular approach doesn't serve the purpose that a business needs it to do, then we need to do something differently. And if that is going down, say, a more autocratic approach, and I don't know if that's that's the route that the example you gave went down, but it's it's all about adapting to the environment, whether that's you know the clientele or the employee environment and and seeing what works best for people. I think really that's the the key point is the dynamism you've got to be dynamic with your leadership, whether that's so, to well I'd love you to oh I'm sorry to catch you off yeah, I, on, I'd on. love you to like dig into that a little further, so you know it, their preferences, right? Well, no one likes change and everything's uncomfortable at first. So they always prefer to do whatever they were doing. So how do you actually like parse out, you know, what are their preferences and how do you get to that understanding quickly? Do, do you mean in terms of employees or do you mean the leaders themselves? You're working with a new client, right? And you're trying to teach him how to be a better leader of his people. How do you get to, these are the, my preferred leadership tactics as quickly as possible. The first, the first portion of, of what we do is, is it's basically an assessment. So how do you approach people? What are your preferences in certain situations? And we use a, a I forget how many questions are in it. And it basically builds you a picture of where you tend to, are you someone who likes to sit back and let people you know, get on with the job, not taking too much control. So once we paint that picture, and it's only a relatively short questionnaire, the next step really then is to speak or get get the leader to communicate with the employees and find out what they're expecting. And that's often where we find the disconnect. That's usually the step where we go, can you see where there's an issue here? And And they then are able to see that issue. And what we're seeing now certainly with Gen Z coming through into the workforce post-pandemic, is that they are wanting an environment that is more caring, that is more balanced, which is a challenge for hospitality, but also somewhere that is highly, it values personal growth as well. And that's, again, it's something we see from, you know, just getting leaders and, and senior managers talking and asking the question and listening to their employees. They're starting to get that insight of actually this is maybe why we have a turnover problem because we're 
we're over here and our employees are over here. How do we, how do we move to meet that, that difference? And again, leadership styles, as we call them, or preferences are dictated largely about by the workforce that, you know, we have available, especially at the minute with, you know, the labor shortages that we're seeing globally for hospitality. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bending that leaders are having to make to accommodate the preferences of the workforce. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is so important. I truly, you know, when you talk with, you know, really great operators, they often talk about working smarter, not harder. And, you know, that lens is usually in terms of operations, but I mean, you know, what you're talking about was what took me five years to get to, right. You know, cutting that down from five years of pain and mistakes to, you know, six months or however long it takes you, that that's incredibly valuable. And once you have that insight of knowing where, certainly if you're a leader who is very adaptable anyway, they want to be a better leader. You can make a massive difference in as little as two weeks. You know, if you get, get things right, start building those relationships with your workforce, you can see massive differences from there. And again, you're right. If, if you can go through it and spend five years learning that by yourself or just by going through that process in as little as two weeks, you can, you can see a, a difference of some sort, not necessarily, you know, life-changing differences, but there's changes that will be made and will happen in such a short time. Yeah, I, I didn't really have a choice. I'd make a mistake and somebody would quit and take their apron off and yell some expletive. And it was like, all right, probably don't need to do that again. Best way to learn, learn fast. Yeah. <laughs> so painful, but fast. Turn, yeah. So turn now to AI, and I know that's a massive part of of your business, Clear Cogs. But how is that? How is that going to change the hospitality industry as as a whole? Not necessarily in terms of your software, but as a whole, how is AI changing actually our industry right now? Yeah, you know, that's that's the billion dollar question. And I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm smart enough to know how this is all going to play out. I'm not a technologist. Uh, I, I'm an ex sandwich maker who knows enough about this stuff to be dangerous. So uh, uh, but I but I can answer this. I can answer where we see it going and, you know, where we're investing our time and energy and, you know, how we think it's going to shape things. So. When we look around at restaurants, right, the hardest thing to do in a restaurant is create magic, create that memorable food, that magical, you know, customer experience. That's the hardest thing we do. Yet, the people that are able to create that magic are not winning. Disproportionately, it's the companies that figure out the cold analytics of running a restaurant. And nobody got into this industry to master the cold analytics and be a bean counter. We got into it to create those magical moments. And so the big opportunity for AI today is it's never going to be able to replace those magical moments. It's just not. But it does the cold analytics and bean counting really, really well. So right now we see a, the disproportionate, disproportionate, I can't even say the word, disproportionate number of people that have that analytics and cold bean counting winning. We also see people spending a lot of their time working on it. So we hope that we can set up the restaurant of the future to be focused on serving their team, serving their customers and creating that magic. And the ones that do that are going to win because AI is taking care of all of the horrible back office stuff. Yeah, it's it's very much certainly from a hospitality standpoint it's very difficult to see and certainly from my my perspective as being very people centric all about the connection whether it's you know leader to employee or employee to customer it's going to be hard to replace that artificial hospitality is something i think will will be tried by some businesses but whether they can actually pull it off is is a totally different question but you're right in terms of that background work of running a business and this is the same whatever industry you're in 
if you have got that ability to call on something as intelligent as AI, and I think we're talking the IQ of ChatGPT, for example, is is far in excess of the average human being. Why aren't we going to see advantages, and why not? Why not tap into those advantages either? Yeah, I mean, like, let's boil it down to something that's really simple. You know, I come from sandwiches, so I'm always thinking in terms of sandwiches. As an operator, I want to make sure that I get you the freshest sandwich as quickly as possible. And I want to make sure I have a crisp tomato on there. My goal should be finding the crispest tomato, having that experience be magical, and getting it to you quickly and flawlessly, right? Now, AI is not going to do that. But what it really can do is, let's say tomato prices go up by 20%. Now, instead of focusing on how do I get the freshest tomato, I'm trying to figure out what does that do to all my prices and margins across this? Do I need to change vendors, right? Like, that's the stuff that we don't need to have people doing that AI will fill in very well for. It's something certainly for for people who have managed restaurants in the past 10 years, only the most, you know, highly effective managers are getting to that point where they're able to keep on top of that stuff. And I know myself from running our coffee shop, we were constantly keeping an eye on fluctuations in prices and how that impacts your margins and your, your cogs percentage. It's a, it, it's a massive piece of work. And, you know, realistically, even for our relatively small coffee shop could take, you know, a big chunk of someone's time to be on top of that all the time. And by tapping into AI and using that to monitor those prices, there's a massive advantage to be had from that, in, you know, freeing up a person's time to act, whether it's add to the guest experience or add value somewhere else in the business, the return on that investment is massive. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the issues that we always dealt with was, you know, transferring product from different places. I'm low on product in one place. You know, AI is really good at being able to go ping everyone's data, see what everyone is prepping, see what they have available, and be able to say, hey, if three hours before you would typically know, you are going to be low on lettuce today. You know, there's a 70% chance you're going to run out before the end of the day. Of the other locations that you have, Stores number three and five have extra lettuce. You know, consider making a transfer. Like, those are the things that, you know, we would get on the phone and call everyone, you know, try and find something who can facilitate that. You know, same goes with scheduling. How many times I sent out our schedule, our phone list, you know, and tried to deal with staffing and, you know, who can fill in this shift. These are all things that I think AI will provide a lot of value in. And- you're right. In terms of, and even if people didn't have the time to ring around places, you're now, if say ordinarily they would just turn back to their supplier and say, I'm short on this, I need it. Can you get it to me ASAP? There's a cost there. Yeah. Or even, worse, that the AI, then... and, yeah, or even worse, go to the grocery store and buy it for three times the cost and there goes your margin for the day. But that's, that's the reality, isn't it? You've, you've got a system there that can, you know, query the database of other locations of your, in your group and, you know, potentially see where there's a surplus and redirect that. And there's a massive, a massive advantage there for, for businesses to, to dip into if they can, if they can harness that power. Now it's, it's very much dependent on the data that's inputted though. And I'd imagine that is a challenge how do we overcome that? What, what do we need to do to make sure that the data that the AI system is using is accurate so that the response and the, and the direction that AI has given us is equally, is relevant? Yeah, so restaurants traditionally have really bad data. And they're bad at logging things. They're bad at managing all of these uh, aspects. They get their on hands incorrect. They do inventory wrong. Like, that poses a serious issue from an AI standpoint. Now, we actually tend to look at it a little bit differently. How can we take what data you do have, as inaccurate as it is, and help you make decisions? So in the instance of 
let's say that lettuce example. We've used too much lettuce. I don't actually need any on-hand counts to tell you that, hey, your sales are far greater and your, your lettuce usage is far greater today than it normally is. If you prepped X number of bins of lettuce today or less, you're going to need to do a transfer. That's the kind of thing where, you know, if you're imaginative on how you use AI, there are some ways to get around the data issue. And just thinking about it now, actually, so even if you were working with 50%, you know, you're working with an accuracy of 50% with your data, you're still freeing up more time. And I don't know if this is what you're seeing with your clients, actually. They're freeing up more time to allow them to make sure that, the, you know, it gives them more time to ensure that the inventory data is more accurate. Is that something you're seeing with people? Yes, without question. But really, it's about moving from being reactive to proactive. We've seen it in industry after industry. You know, I think the postal office versus Amazon is probably the, the best uh, comparison. You know, restaurants are the post office today. You know, we wait and see who comes in the door and then we react. And if it's a holiday, you know, we're behind. Whereas Amazon is fully stocked and ready to get you that Christmas gift within 24 hours. That doesn't happen by accident. Amazon knows someone's going to order this in the next week and we're going to have it in place in this distribution center. And so when you move from being reactive by nature to proactive, which is all predicated on predictive forecasting, machine learning, you're able to make better decisions. I mean, it's in using the example of running lettuce between different locations. The most important thing is not waiting until 9 p.m. when the restaurant calls you and says, hey, I'm low on lettuce, but knowing at 4 p.m. when you're already rounding at the restaurants, it can bring lettuce over. You know, how do we, and, and that's just one small example, but it's, it's time savings there, but it's also stress savings. Being reactive is stressful. When you're in a proactive management stance, like it's a, oh, you know, we've got a plan. If this happens, I'm going to do X. What are some examples then of how we can move to being more proactive? Obviously, you know, with the AI, it's driving those insights earlier, you know, more or less real time, I'd imagine. How else can we become more proactive around this area, around inventory in particular? Well, at least around inventory. So if you have the right number to start with, there is a lot less chaos downstream. When you order the right amount from your supplier and you're not running out or you're not having excess you need to get rid of, you know, that solves a lot of your problems. You're not having to add additional menu items and do a special and, you know, plan accordingly. Like I had the right to start with. Same goes with, you know, prep. We really focus on getting your prep numbers right. How do we leverage all of that data you already have to give you the right number at the beginning of the day? This is how many, you know, uh, uh, burger patties I need preformed. This is how much marinated chicken I ha need to have because, when you do it right first and you have the right number and you prep the right amount, it's smooth sailing. But when things start to go wrong in a restaurant and you get that rush that you're not prepared for and you run out and now all of a sudden you're pulling half your staff in the back to reprep, you've got half as many people serving twice as many customers, that's when the chaos happens. So it's how do we stop that from happening ahead of time, you know, Preparation, food prep, like that is where you stop the chaos. So in terms of the challenges then, where is, in, certainly in this area, where is AI not yet at a level for it to really help us? Is there anywhere where there's still challenges for AI in terms of helping us be more proactive? There's so much data out there. It is you know, I, everyone likes to say more data is better. And, and the truth is there's some truth to that, but it's really not that true. Getting good data is what is important. And managers really do understand their stores. I would say the biggest challenge with AI is trying to replicate all of the knowledge and intangibles that are going on in an operator's head 
you know, paired with the fact that every restaurant is so different and has different systems and procedures. And it's different things that they need to know within their restaurant that really move the needle. So, I mean, I think that the area that we struggle with as an industry and, you know, why we can't have good enough software is how do we replicate the institutional knowledge of that restaurant operator? Is there a specific way that we could overcome that and, and start to get, you know, is there a case that the AI has to learn on a location by location basis? Or is there something we can do a little bit more high level that would allow you know, more progress in that a lot quicker? Yeah, know? so it's something that we're working on right now. And, and it's, it's going to be something that we're always working on. But let's say you wanted to figure out sales forecasting. We really don't do sales forecasting. We really do you know, prep forecasting. But let's say you're trying to figure out sales. One of the issues they have in sales forecasting is if I sell a bunch of gift cards, they didn't. I don't need a bunch of staff there. If I had a catering order I knew about ahead of time, that doesn't really count. If I'm ringing in, um, you know, employee meals versus not ringing them in, or there, there's all of these fringe things that you know you as an operator probably can say, ah, you know, discount last Monday because we had a bunch of things. You're not even thinking about it. You just intuitively know that's a weird number that you shouldn't count. It's hard from a data standpoint to replicate that knowledge. Yeah, I suppose there's so much in terms of, you know, anecdotal data that we as human beings process and, and feed into our decision making. It's very difficult for for AI to to get that context. My and, first you know, restaurant was a college campus store. We ran the bar rush. You know what was one of the things we did every bar rush? You'd go stick your head outside about every hour, look around, look at the lines, the bar and make the determination of like, hey, should we bake more? Should we bake less? What are we expecting? Like, sure, there's a world where AI's got cameras on the street and it's monitoring all that, but we're a long ways from that. And it's that institutional knowledge that is, you know, really hard to replicate. But the other 95% of the days does a really, really good job. Now let's let's talk about clear cars because I know certainly from my perspective when I first come across it I thought you know it's a fantastic product and you know on the surface because for us as a coffee shop certainly initially till we got a handle on on where we were financially we were doing weekly inventories you know stock take every week initially getting our P&L updated as often as we could as as often as was reasonable for the staff. But where does where does ClearCogs then fit into this? From an operator's point of view, what does using ClearCogs look like for them? Yeah, so it's literally just a report every day with all of the numbers you need to operate your business more efficiently, specifically around food. What do I need to order? What do I need to prep? And it's turned into... Uh, it's, you know, customized to your individual location. What are your shelf lives, lead times? How do we optimize your prep? So, you know, you're doing green sauce on, you know, Mondays and Fridays and we're getting the right amount so that you're not having to prep on those other days. So in terms of what input do they have? Is it is it automatically pulling data from, you know, say a POS or, you know, an ordering service? How does... How is ClearCogs getting its data? What's it using? Do we have to input it ourselves to, to make sure it's up to date? Yeah, it's a really, really uh, simple system. So we built this around operators. Most of our employees are operators. Like we wanted to create something that was built for restaurants. So first and foremost, no, there is no manual input of any data on urine. We aim to be one less thing, not one more thing to do. So you're not having to input any data. Secondly, you've got all of this POS data with all of this information in it, but you don't have the time or energy to parse it. So we're using all of that POS data to understand what it is that you're selling. The only thing that an operator needs to do is do a short setup where they get on for, you know, call it a 30, 45 minute therapy session to say like, hey, these are all my problems and this is what I need to know. And like, here are the weird things you do need to know about our operation. And then all of a sudden, what our system does is every day we tap into your POS data, goes up in the cloud, goes through all of your different preferences and 
I always say, just like a great general manager, it looks at what you've been doing in the past. It looks where your trends are, the day of the week, all of that brings in yesterday's data. And with this new evidence, it, it comes up with a you know more informed decision for tomorrow. And you know that all just gets emailed out to all of your team. So they don't even have to manage another login. It's just a report that shows up every day. And I think to have that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of places will have a prep list and they may do it by day. You know, it's the same every week by day. But what I get the impression with ClearCogs is actually you're getting a, a very almost bespoke prep list each day. Is that right? It's, it's telling you how much you should be aiming to prepare for, you know, the forecast that it has for that day. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I think the best example I can give is our first, you know, customer. And that was my cousin. He was a Jimmy John's franchisee. He, he got to be our first guinea pig. One of the problems I always had was a couple hours prior to close, I had all my assistant managers and they'd look around and say, do I need to bake another cycle of bread or do I have enough? It was a very simple decision that they needed an answer to. And because they didn't have an answer, A, they were stressed out all the time that they were going to get it wrong and get in trouble. But B, they would always overbake because, hey, we've all run out. It's awful. You got to shut off online ordering. Your customers are angry. You got to call back deliveries. Like it's, it's a whole thing, right? So they don't want that. So they always overbake. Being able to use the data they already had and to turn that into the magic number for this store. Hey, on this store, on this day, given all these variables, the magic number for you is 18 sticks of bread. We only think you're going to use 12, but we want you to bake 18 so that you only run out 2% of the time, you know, six times a year. That's how we started the company. And it's getting those numbers right that really decrease your food cost. I mean, that cut their bread waste by 53%. I mean, it was, it was kind of insane. But that's, ma that's massive. That is huge. And you yeah. start thinking of a, all the costs where that would add up, you know, every time we over prep or, you know, under prep and lose the sale, you're almost smoothing out those peaks and troughs to give you that more consistent service that we're talking about often. Certainly on this podcast, we talk about how consistency is important for you know attracting and maintaining and retaining your customers this is giving you that in you know in a software package it's largely you know you've still got to have the execution behind it has got to be right but in terms of the thinking you're getting ahead of the curve here and with like you say if you're only running out you know two percent of the time that's that's a massive win you know, Andy, the thing that we struggle with most is, you know, everybody thinks that they run good food costs. So you go ask like, hey, where are your food costs at and where do you want them to be? And there's a, you know, three percentage point gap, but that's really good in the industry. They are being efficient. The bar has been set so low that everyone thinks they do a good job. And again, it's like running a really good post office. Yes, you're running a great, you know, uh, local post office, but you could be Amazon. And so I, I think one of the things that's always, you know, difficult to portray is one of our customers literally said, we don't think you can save us anything at all. And they were a top notch group run by a bunch of ex cheesecake factory guys. And sure enough, we saved them 2.25% off their food costs, like overnight. They were literally shocked because in their world, they were doing a great job. When we're talking about these percentages and anyone listening to this will know, even if we're talking half a percent on your food cost, it could be tens of thousands of dollars, you know, at the end of the, you know, end of the month or at certainly end of the year, at least, you know, that's huge amounts of, of money just by, yeah. you know, having AI do the heavy lifting for us. Well, the problem is this. Making money in a restaurant is like rowing a, a leaky boat. You got a bunch of teeny little holes and it's it's not one giant thing. It's getting 50, 100 decisions a day close to right. And so 
that's the world where it's how do we systemize that so that we're getting all of these little decisions right? Because that's the difference between, you know, your food costs being 25% or 30% and your labor being 25% or 35%. It's little decisions that stack up on top of each other. Again, going back to the, you know, analogy earlier, you know, it's counting the pennies. If you can get the pennies right, it, the dollars tend to take care of themselves. Yeah, it's, it is. It's massive. And, you know, you're right. We're talking about single digit profit margins. The more that we can, we can do to increase that, the better. And we always try and get that across to venture capitalists. It's like, no, most of these guys have a four, five, 6% profit margin. You know, when you add 2% to their bottom line, that's 50, 30%, you know, increase in profitability. That's massive. And what are you seeing then? What are, what are the general area in terms of percentage point savings? Are you are you delivering to businesses through clear cogs? It just depends. You know, the one problem you get with restaurants, every restaurant operation is different. But as a benchmark, I'd say if you're doing inventory and you have theoretical food costs, it's whatever your difference between your theoreticals and actuals are, we can typically cut that in half. Now, it, that's not a, a straight rule. I'd say a lot of our customers really just use us to systemize things so that they can grow quicker. How do I, I've got four great assistant managers and they all know how to do this and they're not my problem, but I've got to open up another 10 and I can't get another four great general managers. So how do I suck in their wisdom so that I can give a fully you know, vetted systems and procedures to these new general managers so we can grow. Now, we're coming towards the end, and I wanted to, you know, we, you mentioned books earlier on, and it's something since we changed to the Hospitality Leadership Podcast, I wanted to really try and focus in on not, you know, a lot of our industry people don't necessarily have a massive amount of time to read books, but I know certainly for me it's changed the way I think, you know, every time I get into to reading books. Now, you mentioned that you'd read a lot of leadership books earlier, but I wanted to dig into what was maybe one of the biggest impact you got from a book is the one that stands out for you. You learned lessons from. Uh, for all of the people out there that don't have a lot of time, I've got a great book for you because it's short. The One Minute Manager. Okay. It was the first book I was given. It still holds true to this day. Clear, concise, simple feedback constantly. This is what you did right. This is what you did wrong. Being able to be transparent and, you know, constantly guiding the ship in the right direction versus we're going to wait till next quarter and just throw all of this on you. Is it's uh, Leadership is iterative and that's the way I, I try and get people to think about it. It's not like, oh yeah, I'm going to change. Yeah, ne Next year I'll, I'm going to change. I'm going to really reform how I lead people and it comes from those tiny, again, it comes back to details, doesn't it? Those tiny little changes over time are what make the real difference. And you can start right now. You know, we don't have to wait until, you know, next quarter or next month. We start right now. And, you know, that book is probably one of the ones that is recommended more often than not on this, this podcast, or certainly when I speak to people, because it is, it gives people that ability to lead better quickly. Authenticity and transparency. I mean, that's where it's at. Just get in the habit of speaking your mind. I, it's funny. I had uh, my daughter uh, come show me one of her artwork. And uh, I said, no, it's great. And she goes, specifically, what is great about it? And I realized, you know, my years of, you know, hospitality and, you know, restaurant management doing that, you know, it just becomes so ingrained that, I just do it naturally without thinking about it. And, you know, the moment that I didn't do it, she's like, whoa, I want my feedback. Was it good? You know, what are the things I can improve on? And, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of lessons. I certainly with my kids as well. They, they teach us lots of lessons in, in terms, and you can apply leadership skills to, you know, your home life, can't you? And, and how, how you interact with your kids. But listen, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks for you know it's been a great discussion actually around your certainly your experience through being an operator but now obviously the way that clear cogs is helping our industry helping people in our industry 
be more profitable is is really important. Where can people go to find out more about you and more, you know, more importantly, check out Clear Cogs and what it can do for them as a business? Yeah. Again, Andy, thanks for having me. You can find us at clearcogs.com. Send us an email to info at clearcogs.com. We always love when people follow us on LinkedIn and social media. Uh, reach out. If you're an operator, we love to talk with you. Whether you like the software or not, we just enjoy talking to an operator. So please reach out. Listen, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Me as well. And, uh, and we all... You, you should sleep safe at night knowing that AI is not coming for any leadership anytime soon. So many operational and leadership lessons there in that chat with Matt. And I wanted to just, before I go, reiterate about our hospitality leadership coaching that we offer one-on-one to individuals. We've also got group programs that can really help teams develop over whether it's workshops or on specific issues. You know, one of the ones we run often is our Vision Clarity Workshop, which is all about collectively as a team creating a vision, getting clear on what that vision means and how we can then communicate that to our wider employees so they can all contribute to the growth of a business. Email me at andy at thecafehustle.com if you want to inquire about how you and I can work together on that. It's something that I find really rewarding and I think our clients find extremely valuable, particularly executives, when it comes to getting that space to think getting that facilitated space to think that's how i describe it but I would, you know even the offer is here right now for one free session with me you'll get a full-blown 90-minute session where you and i can sit down and we can tackle one of your biggest challenges i like to get out there and mix with people get out there and chat through problems with people but certainly if you are interested in taking me up on that offer of a 90-minute session email me again at andy at the cafe hustle.com and we can get the ball rolling listen thank you so much for joining me on this episode i appreciate your time and i look forward to welcoming you back on our next episode or if you are going to email me, I look forward to chatting with you about our upcoming coaching session.